0: Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast, and today we'll be talking about the role of NGOs in healthcare in Lebanon. This episode is co-hosted with Dr. Mohamed Ali Jardali, and uh, our guests today are two veterans MDs who are working with NGOs in Lebanon. We've got Dr. Tanya Baban, who's uh, actually uh, working currently as country manager for uh, Med Global in Lebanon. And we'll talk a bit about my global in a bit. And we've got Dr. Vladimir Shaddad, who currently works with International Rescue Mission or IRC in Lebanon and in also the Middle East region. And he has also worked with multiple other NGOs, Swiss, Belgian, and others. So he has a huge NGO experience over the past 10 years. Tanya and Vlad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for
1: having me. Thank
0: us. you. So I'm going to ask first Vlad and Tanya. So, so Vlad, how. I mean, you've been in the humanitarian and medical field for a very long time. So, how did you mm. get into the field? How did you get interested in, in in being in the field?
2: Yeah. So basically, as you may already know, at the med schools in Lebanon, we don't touch really base on anything regarding humanitarian and development work, and we focus only on clinical. For my personal Oh, sorry, I wasn't satisfied with my results for the residency. And my wife back then, my girlfriend, she was already an HR director in a local national NGO. And she said, why won't you try working uh, in a mobile medical unit, for example, to, you know, change change the uh, pace? And when I started working uh, with one and uh, the because, it was mainly in uh, informal tented settlements. I started asking, you know, a question, how this mission was chosen, why we are buying this and not that, from where we are getting the money, how the decisions are being made. And one thing led to, to the other. I started shifting uh, my attention from clinical to more health project management uh, side of a uh, type of work. And in my last position that I currently hold at at IRC, it's basically focused on business development for countries that I support. So I help them develop new projects. I bounce new ideas with them, but also a big part of my job is also to keep the country or the, the missions up to date with the latest development in terms of health care and specifically in primary health using uh, evidence and therefore to be able to save not only more lives but also to save lives uh, in an equitable and qualitative way as well.
0: And Tanya, how did you get in? I know you, you were, we were talking uh, offline initially and you you got into the NGOs or got into the medical care humanitarian aid world uh, after the Beirut blast in 2020.
1: So, um, so I don't have a very strategic story like Vlad does. Um, but, you know, I just uh, you both know the medical system in Lebanon was always a privatized type of system. So we always had maybe the lack of primary health care or preventive health care um, And I think this is what we as doctors who train in Lebanon kind of miss out on. So this is something that I never had a background in. So my journey started by uh, getting into the ophthalmology specialty in uh, St. George Hospital in 2015, and that was after the Syrian crisis. But um, my initial initiative was quite selfish. We as residents wanted to see more cases. So I would actually call local national NGOs and say, listen, we're willing to provide free eye services if you send us patients. And that's how by spread of word of mouth, we started raising funds. And by the end of my residency in 2018, we had actually raised more than $50,000 to do free pro bono surgeries. And this was my only experience at the time with planning, as Vlad said, a program and budgeting for it and following up on the budgets with the donors who were basically my friends and family. But it was a win-win situation. I mean, the residents were getting more exposure. um, The patients were getting free services um, and the hospital was getting paid in cash and the doctors would have... um, An increase in their um, how do you say their surgical curve because you had to admit under the attendee's name. So when I graduated as a non-Lebanese, unfortunately, even though I have studied and I've been trained in Lebanon, I found out that I was unable to obtain a license to practice. Um, So in the meantime, I had to do something related to my specialty. And uh, lo and behold, after the blast, Medglobal was looking for a three-month contract for a program manager, and that's how my journey started. And you realize at the end of the day that the outcome of why you went into medicine is the same, whether you're a doctor or you're working in healthcare as a humanitarian. Maybe the impact is bigger because instead of seeing one patient at a time in the clinic, I realize now I'm able to plan projects to provide healthcare services for hundreds of patients in one project. But again, I think the important factor that Vlad touched on is that now I know better about planning a primary health care service and looking at preventative measures to give these patients a better chance and long-term survival, rather than having them have chronic illnesses that are complicated, leading them to go for specialized um, services that are more expensive and not very cost-effective. But that's how my journey started, basically.
3: Thank you for sharing with us, Tanya. I think uh, there's a lesson uh, to be learned uh, from your journey about the current policies of the healthcare system in Lebanon. And let's hope we can advocate uh, for change to be more inclusive. I don't think this should <laughs> <that weird. laughs> but the talking, uh, listening, you talk about uh, the med school curriculum in Lebanon. I think there's a disconnect, honestly, uh, because uh, at least I studied in, under an American curriculum. So uh the the few modules that we had about the social determinants of health were were from a a very western uh lens you know and they used to talk about those cases in africa for example and it it was very like exotic you know and then we forget what's happening in our own background and i think through the multiple crises that have hit hit lebanon over the past few years and that have accelerated since uh, 2019 and since I don't know if there's been a shift, but I know a lot of medical students now are getting into humanitarian aid from uh, the medical school uh, level, not just residency. I think there is some minor change uh, happening. And just like in your case, with a lot of individual uh, initiatives initially, but more and more, I see a lot of the newer generation organizing and starting missions and uh, volunteer clubs as students. So I think there's been a shift more and more as the situation in Lebanon has changed. So maybe this could be a good time for Vlad to share about his experience and his maybe success stories with the different missions in Lebanon and how the field has changed over the past
2: 10 years. So one thing I could start saying is that there is interest in uh, having kind of humanitarian curriculums in uh, universities, but I think they're not like masters or, or big programs, but um, I think the EUB is is a, is a pioneer in that, and they have the Global Health Institute for Dr. I guess, Fuad. I don't know if you know him, who is the director and, and founder. And one of the biggest curriculums uh, there is supporting local NGOs to work better and everything. But you also have one chapter regarding uh, health project management in humanitarian emergency, let's say. But... To say maybe in, in, in a few words what changed since 2014 up until now, it's basically the first noticeable thing is the donor support that classically, as I have uh, learned, decreases over time with any type of prices. But of course, during the very last Lebanon got a lot of uh, financial uh, support, uh, and I think it was the biggest year. It was about $1.4 billion in aid, covering uh, most of the the sector. Uh, But in general, for health, the support has been decreasing. So less and less clinics are being supported, but the clinics that are being supported by international NGOs are supported strategically. So, as an example, I would say for IRC, IRC has been here uh, also uh, after uh, by by Root Blast in health. Although uh, we have been in Lebanon since 2011, working in protection, education, women empowerment, and economic recovery sectors, for health, we are trying something new. We are not working working with clinics as service providers, but we are considering them as our peers and partners. Hence, I will share uh, with you the, the name. So we have a program program named Peers. Uh, it's a system approach to support a local NGO that has a health clinic where we utilize our own knowledge as a big international organization. Uh, to increase the competencies of the departments, of several departments of which a PhD constitutes, for example. We give training to the director, to the HR, to the finance, to the governance. And then, of course, we continue the trainings for uh, the healthcare workers. So this has been a very big change because in the beginning, it was more of like we pay the clinic based on how many people they saw with some touch based on quality. But now with resources being smaller and smaller, the donors themselves want to spend their money strategically. So they would rather give the the money to someone that offers a sustainable solution to a small number of PHCs as compared to someone who will offer uh, just fee-for-service or a larger group. So this has been also a shift worldwide, but Lebanon is part of the these crises and, and, and we are seeing this major shift, uh, which is, I would say, kind of a build back better kind of movement. So the system is already broken. The system is already not working very well, but we are trying to achieve something that is even better than pre-crisis, let's say. No, I hope we- it answers his question
0: yeah it does I think right uh, yeah because I think I think what you what you're what you're saying too is that you're trying to now empower the people in Lebanon to be able to run the clinics themselves exactly. basically you're trying to make sure it's going with with the Lebanese culture and with Lebanon with Lebanon itself and rather rather than being like from outside where somebody mm-hmm. says we're going to run the clinic this way from outside so you're running it from Lebanon. yeah they
2: own the narrative
0: basically. Exactly, exactly.
2: And also like Tanya, that and their programs, we, we do have a big community health program. And with big, good community health uh, health programs, the way that uh, we can prevent disease or we could potentially decrease the complication are really huge.
0: Right. I'm going to talk about that in just a bit. And so, so, Tanya, maybe we can touch on that. This is a good segue to touch on that with you because MedGlobal works with a lot of the refugees in Lebanon, right? So can you tell us a bit about the work that they do and and the community health program?
1: Yes, so I think just to just uh, expand a little bit on what Vlad said, because this is really important. People, when you say NGOs or humanitarian work, people look at what we do like the rainbows and butterflies, but that's not really as simple as that. There's been a major shift in the thought process and the dynamics, mostly in the last, maybe few years after COVID. But um, before the program implementations would be, you know, we come in with the donor money, we implement our program, the program is done, we get the statistics and the data, we send them to the donor, these are the number of the beneficiaries, and we're out. But that is not sustainable, not only in Lebanon, but it's globally, in all the countries, MedGlobal works in nine countries. So as a medical doctor, and as you would know, we cannot come and implement a healthcare project And we're giving you services, as Vlad said, we're going to pay for your consultations for a month or two. And then when the fund runs out, we're leaving. That is not sustainable. It doesn't build capacity and it doesn't empower the local healthcare system. And at one point we had to decide, because now with what Vlad is calling donor fatigue, you know, with the Syrian refugees, it's been more than 11 years. At one point, donors will tell you, we don't see an end to this, so we don't want to fund it anymore. In addition to the fact that we have all these major crises that are happening so in, in so many parts of the world, there is lack of funding. They will say, okay, this is happening now. We have the crisis in Sudan. We have the crisis in Ukraine. We have Yemen. We have Gaza. We have Syria. The earthquake response that it's going to last for a month, and it's has been in It's All NGOs are basically hemorrhaging money. So the idea is when you're planning a healthcare intervention in Lebanon, or at least that's how I approach it, not only do you plan the empowerment of the local capacity of the clinics that you're going to support or, you know, the the local partners that you want to work with, but also we need to assess whether or not, and this is, I think it was introduced very recently by, by USA, is that we need to also try to look at whether or not our intervention is introducing any harm. And I think this was the major factor that we needed to look at when NGOs came in after the refugee crisis in Lebanon and after the blast. And they started doing maybe some cash assistance, some healthcare support, um, because there were a huge influx of funds. And then you realize, am I creating more harm than good? by letting these people depend on the funds that I'm providing without providing them with sustainable solutions. So if I have a Syrian family or a Lebanese family, and every month I give them cash and free medication and free healthcare services, how does that empower them that once I leave the country for them to continue? So in all our projects now, we incorporate a sustainable plan and our referral pathway. So for example, currently we're working on the first mental mobile unit in Lebanon in partnership with Embrace. Embrace is one of the well-known national mental health NGOs in Lebanon. So we wanted to create a mobile mental health unit that would go through more areas to spread awareness because we know that mental health has come to the forefront after the lockdowns and COVID and what everything's happening in the world. But we know that in Lebanon, this topic is still taboo. So if I go to Arsene or if I go to Hermin or if I go to Akkar and I tell them, "Okay, your mental health matters and I provide consultation and I provide medication, I know that mental health takes years and years of work for them to see any improvement or at least months. So we've actually created a referral pathway. We went through the National Mental Health Program in Lebanon through the Ministry of Health and we would identify PHCs or primary health care centers in nine locations, and we would go provide the services to the patients while providing simultaneous training to the PHC so that these patients from that location can continue their medical services or medical follow-up with the clinic in their area. And should the clinic be unable to... Uh, if there's a complicated case, they'll always know to refer back to Embrace. And Embrace can have connections with AUBMC doctors. So there must be a referral way so that in the end, there's always a pathway for the patient to have a solution. The idea of, oh, sorry, service, or I don't have mental health or I don't know what to do. Go to Beirut. Is not acceptable anymore, not under the circumstances that we have. Fuel is super expensive. Patients will not commute because of the lack of funding for the transport. Buy money, uh, sorry, they will not buy food. They will not buy medications because of the, of the inflation. It's really becoming worse and worse on a daily basis. So, this is why sustainability is the key to let the public healthcare system which was really over, overwhelmed with everything that has happened because there's been a major shift from the private sector, the public sector, from the Lebanese people, and the public sector was unable to handle all this. We should empower and let this these clinics and hospitals be sustainable so that they can eventually look after the patients in the country without having to depend on external funds all the time.
3: Fascinating, fascinating. And I know from personal experience working in one of those uh, primary healthcare systems, it's really good when you have a robust uh, referral system and a whole network that you can refer patients to. And when you can reach out to different NGOs for food security, for uh, issues with child abuse, issues with uh, domestic uh, and partner violence. So it's important for all those players to come together uh, and work with the primary healthcare centers. And I know I've reached out to Tanya and Vlad multiple times for those uh, referral uh, networks. And a lot of patients have benefited from that. So uh, I'm going to ask Vlad if maybe you can share a few of your uh, success stories or big projects that you worked on in Lebanon, or if you wanted to share with us something uh, about your experience in, in the Middle East, because I know you've worked outside of Lebanon as well.
2: Yeah, I will share like from top of my head two experiences. Uh, one was personal with the other one at a project base. Uh, so the first one was uh, when I was working with Anasaf Belgium at their at their primary health center, and I encountered a woman with her baby, and the baby suffered sp- spina bifida, and basically the UNHCR wasn't covering because they only cover emergency uh, surgeries and MSF doesn't do or cover those type of surgery either so um, this is something that Tanya started to talk about it's coordination so Lebanon I think it's one of the countries where the health sector coordination is at its peak in terms of collaboration and uh, in terms of communication and transparency Uh, so I just hit uh, an email to all the sector partners describing the case to see if anybody is even remotely possible possibly be able to help this case and uh, eventually uh one colleague from pcrs said that yeah we do have specifically a program that treats uh, uh spina bifida but only with uh to for palestinian patients but then uh apparently I wasn't the first one requesting this. They extended uh, their program to cover uh, Syrian refugees and sometimes uh, vulnerable uh, Lebanese population. So I ended up being able to help this kid, but also discovered that the mother uh, wasn't being followed up upon, uh during her pregnancy. Uh, classically, she hasn't had, had her... Uh, vitamins and everything during the pregnancy, hence the spina bifida. So uh, we also gave uh, the proper messaging uh, for her at our uh, maternal clinic. And um, uh, for for a more project uh, based uh, intervention uh, during COVID, I was stuck in Amman, but I started working for Medair, which is a Swiss NGO. And um, the focus w- was uh, in Syria. I'm sure you've heard of uh, Dairazor uh, in the past. And we actually had an office there. And uh, people were literally, during COVID, the people were literally dying because there wasn't oxygen. Because Oxygen left because they had to ship oxygen from 300 kilometers away from Hamas so uh, classically we don't work in in hospitals also we only worked in in, in phcs so with some let's say lobbying skills i could persuade the our management and the donor that we are well positioned to actually uh, build an oxygen uh, station in the resort and eventually with that and it ended up saving a numerous amount of, of people and not only from covid you know but also this has become the hub for all northeast syria to refill their oxygen tanks so when they also had their uh yearly sandstorms in the summer people would come there to to have their oxygen treatment if if i may say so this project because we actually built something there it this is up there for at least five, 10 years. It's not more if it's properly, you know, repaired. So this is one type of project that I really like because it's really sustainable because we train the people how to use it, how to take care of it. And eventually a lot, a lot, like thousands and thousands of people uh, eventually benefited from that. Exactly. I, can, I have many more.
0: <laughs> <but> <laughs> let's stick for just two. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I think most of the NGOs are are going the same way. I know when I when I talked to to Maya Bizri when they went to Ukraine too, it was the same way where you were trying to empower uh the doctors and nurses and healthcare workers in Ukraine uh to be able to manage their program on their own eventually and not be dependent on outside help uh, all the time. Which, which I think people even maybe if you do surveys, people even me maybe appreciate that. Uh more uh, so. So basically, do you feel that the role of NGOs in Lebanon, like before, I think before the crisis, right, was more focused on refugees in Lebanon, right? But but do you feel that it's been expanding more recently to involve a lot of the Lebanese people too?
2: Yeah, we can uh, definitely see that, and also in numbers. For example, classically, the health centers had see. C- c- 50 50 like 50 percent the local population 50 percent most refugees but lately it has become 60 70 and sometimes more percent toward the lebanese side and it's not because the refugee numbers is decreasing it's literally because the number of uh, lebanese is increasing and i'm pleased to say that they were actually surprised of the quality of services they are getting Sometimes they could get not only a doctor's visit for free or for a really low amount of of of, uh, of money. They could also have blood tests, sometimes referral, x ray ECG, and all for free. So now I don't know why people have waited for the crisis to go to those clinics, but also I mean. How, how how can I put it? The, the health system, the public health system in Lebanon is was weak and is still weak and basically, you know, on, on life support, thanks to all this inter, inter, international aid. But I think if we pull this together, have a good governance plan at ministerial level with the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Social Affairs, you know, crunch those numbers to be able, you know, to have a system that works. Because currently, in the Ministry of Health, most of the expenditures could go covering, you know, some uh, a lot of cancer medication and you have the cost for human resources. So there isn't any more money to cover more human resources because we actually need more and to cover everything else. So... um I would say that thanks to the international health NGOs, people are discovering that actually the public health centers in Lebanon are, are of uh, pretty much high quality compared as uh, to what it was before. But I'm also hoping that with the help of big donors and with the collaboration of the uh, government, specifically the Ministry of Health, we can go uh, even beyond uh you know this type of uh uh, collaboration
1: yeah i think
3: the system in lebanon is very privatized and it's very fragmented to begin with Mm. and the focus on tertiary care at the expense of primary care right if you think of all the medical schools six out of seven are private in lebanon and the same goes to the number of private hospitals and private clinics so the private sector in lebanon is Uh, stronger than the public sector. And that's because of the politics. It's a political choice that made it that way throughout the past 60, 70 years of Lebanon's existence. So I don't think it's just about uh, NGOs and international aid. I think the political structure made it as such, and we had the weakness. Mm -hmm. And also primary care in Lebanon has always been an afterthought. So I think there's a lot of gaps, and uh, the system is fragmented as a whole. So I'm glad to hear that there's a lot of coordination between NGOs, but just like you said, NGOs cannot replace the Ministry of Public Health of Lebanon, which needs to have a vision, which needs to have a goal, and then everyone else can work uh, towards that goal. So I think there's a lot to be said about the decisions Mm -hmm. and the political will at the level of the ministry. And then the rest of the NGOs and humanitarian aid can feed into that. system
2: we are actually waiting for their new vision i think it was presented a couple of weeks ago to a small uh, a small group but it, it will be rolled out so we'll be waiting uh, to see uh, what it is
0: and, and and tanya do you feel the same as Vlad too with Med global that you're you're having to help a lot of uh, lebanese people uh, more at this point
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, um I think when I first started, because I started after the blast, um, we already started with um a focus on uh beneficiaries in Beirut as an initial um as an initial project um, um, um kickoff. And that was during COVID. So we had to do a lot of support to hospitals in Beirut that were supporting with Um, COVID cases, but as that died down, um, we did start obviously looking at areas like Arsene, um, who are a majority of Syrian um refugees. But that being said, um, I'm not Lebanese as you know, but I've lived in Lebanon for thirty years. So, andra, Lebanon is my. And I try to be as diverse as possible for the reason that I know how Lebanon is structured. I know how we think and I know how we're divided. So I always make it a point that I can actually on a map diversify all my activities so that no one can say that MedGlobal has been sectarian or MedGlobal has been racist or this and that plus. We know what's on the ground. When we do our field visits, we do what's known as a needs assessment. So I know that we did a mapping of the areas in Ashrafiye and Maram Khail after the blast, for example, and we realized that there were a lot of old Lebanese, old people who had no caregivers. And these patients have no access to health care. There's nobody to take care of. A mobile unit with a specialist geriatrician and a nurse, and they would go take appointments and see these patients in their homes. And then we'd have the lab um, go take their lab tests that were requested, and then the volunteers would go take the treatment after it's being prescribed. In clinics where we subsidize, like Vlad said, the complete healthcare package from a consultation into a lab workup into medications at low, low cost. If we want to compare last year's numbers to this year, um, these are in the Bihar and Akka region. Um, there were statistically 75 percent of the patient population that were Syrian and the remaining were Lebanese, Palestinian and others. what, what, what we mean by others are, you know, um, immigrants who are living in Lebanon. But now we're really seeing, like Vlad said, and and an, an equitization between the Syrians and the Lebanese. Yes, because the Lebanese people have started to think to go to a subsidized primary healthcare clinic rather than to go to a tertiary clinic. On the long run, like Vlad suggested or he pointed out, if this um, can be planned with a with a really thought with well-thought vision, um, this could actually be um, uh, like a a hidden benefit for Lebanon to move from tertiary to primary. That would be more cost-effective. It would be obviously more health beneficial to the patient. And that way we would strengthen the primary healthcare system, keeping in mind that I think What people don't realize is that NGOs not only provide support financially to the clinics, but this money is also spent locally, so it's also being pumped into the local economy. And this is one of, I don't know about other NGOs, but this is one of MedGlobal's policies is that money should be, or whatever we need should be purchased locally to support the local economy as well. So it's all really connected if you think about it. And there are a lot of small things that people don't know about how NGOs function. Um, But it's really to benefit what we're doing and to leave a positive mark for the local community to be able to take over on the long run when the NGO is able to do that exit strategy.
3: I'm I'm glad to hear that a lot of uh, work is moving towards sustainability. Uh, and uh, using local resources. And I kind of want to go off topic, but I would be amiss not to ask Tanya if you've seen the Mr. Beast video on treating uh, 1,000 blind patients. Did you see that one?
1: No, can you send it to me? (laughs) No,
3: no one, Vlad, Salil. No. Okay, so I'm going to send... Mr. Beast is the biggest YouTuber on earth. He has the highest number of followers ever. And he does a lot of interesting videos. He did like a real-life squid game competition. And he always does out-of-the-box, completely outrageous videos. And his last one was actually treating 1,000 blind patients by providing surgery in the U.S. and in Southeast Asia. And there was a big controversy about why he was doing it and is he doing it to get more clicks? And um, it just made me think of our conversation about like, donor aid and coming doing one project and then uh leaving and since you're an ophthalmologist i thought this was would... no, but let
1: me ask you a question what do i care if he got more clicks as long as these patients got their treatment good for him i mean if 1000 patients got treatment for their eye eye ailment then so be it let him get the extra clicks I, I i think it was
3: great but uh, the video is sensational and a lot of people are asking just questions about using that as promotion for his own channel and to get more views so like it, it was walking on like ethical uh territory but
1: but let me tell you something that's a that's something actually that's quite interesting that you touched upon you know a lot of um a lot of donors use fundraisers uh fundraising strategies by using influencers and youtubers to raise awareness and they actually um fly them into crisis areas to uh, whatever they do, they tweet or you know they take a video or a selfie about what's happening. And um, by raising awareness, those followers are donating to those causes. And sometimes actually um, there are a lot of NGOs who actually specialize in that type of fundraising. Um, so they're using social media to also raise funds. Um, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I just feel I don't know if uh, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but, you know, when you're in the humanitarian world now in these times and you see what's happening when you attend the meetings and you see what's happening all over the world. And now we're talking about climate crisis and the terminology is changing and we're going to see climate refugees with, you know, an increase in the numbers of refugees in addition to what we already have. Because of all the climate change, you just feel like this is never ending. So, uh, Muhammad, you were talking about the interest of medical doctors in the humanitarian field, and now that it's it's a big thing, you know, because it's needed, and there are NGOs popping everywhere, and and people want to work with NGOs, want to make a difference. Plus, because there's the misconception that NGOs pay a lot of money, which is not really the case um it's a lot of hard work it's a lot of stress um if you go to the fields if you're not in uh behind the desk uh in headquarters and you do your field visits it could be um quite difficult to deal with time and time again um i a lot of times i got survivor's guilt you know because why them and why not me and why am i lucky why do i have a house why do i have an education and that really can take the toll so um it's not easy as people think. And we don't come in with the with the hero complex that we're coming to save the day, because at the end of the day, you actually realize that what you're doing is just a drop in the ocean. The needs and the gaps are huge, and they're growing every day. And even though, as Vlad pointed out, there's a very well-organized system in Lebanon with the Ministry of Health and the health cluster that actually aligns all the activities, we still have a lot of gaps.
0: Uh, yeah, that that's, I agree with that 100%, and I have a couple, couple more questions, I think, and one is, you both work for two different NGOs in Lebanon, and there's a lot more NGOs involved in the healthcare sector in Lebanon, do you guys talk to each other, do you collaborate on, on projects, or do some of the projects overlap, or do you compete with each other, I guess, that's another question to your eyes.
2: Well, you you answered with with your your question, actually. Sometimes we do collaborate. So we talk, uh, we enter as a consortium of NGOs to respond to um, donor proposal. Uh, Sometimes we compete one-on-one, sometimes consortium versus a consortium. But also you have to know that sometimes a donor caps, you know, the limit of a Project, for example, they will say that you you have only two million dollars for a project out of an envelope of let's say fifty million. So let's say five NGOs gets uh, or ten NGOs get selected, but we will have a better chance to get selected if we talk with each other. You know, so we kind of either divide areas of strength. Sometimes we collaborate. Let's say we do mental health; uh, the other people do. Uh, a chronic disease so th- these types of uh, collaboration but now on the more and more uh, what we see on the ground because of the aid money uh, that is shrinking donors specifically big donors prefer to target either big consortia that we, we are talking about i don't know 20 to 50 million dollar project over four to five years uh because it is will cost administratively less time and money to handle this or they would contract one big uh, humanitarian actor to do one big project so uh, uh you you have these these all, all the options are open basically but stra- strategically it's a ngo decision to compete or collaborate so depending on what is the on how they are reading the situation
1: Okay.
3: Fair enough. Fair enough. I I think that makes sense. I guess it's time to conclude, but I want to ask Tanya if you have any advice for people, healthcare workers, medical students, residents who want to go into the humanitarian field and are tentative. Do you have any advice for them? Obviously, don't do it for the money because (laughs) you'll be
1: disappointed. (laughs) No, I think, yeah, I think that also applies to us when we went into medical school, right? Um, A lot of people would say, oh, you're gonna be a doctor, so you're gonna be rich. But I'm personally speaking, I never did it for the money. I was voted in high school, most likely to volunteer. Everyone else asked, best smile, most likely to be president. And I remember thinking, what does that mean? Now I realize what they meant. They probably knew my personality better than I did at that age, but yes, it's a passion, it's a calling, it takes a lot of hard work and dedication. I mean, um, Vlad would know better than me because he's with a bigger international NGO, Met Global is still growing, but it takes a lot of work to get a fund. You have to be able to write proposals, you have to be able to strategize and plan, and to be able to have, um, patience with leadership skills. But also, um, I think the biggest word that has taught me what it's like to work in the humanitarian field is being humble, being empathetic. Because at the end of the day, when you go to these places, you have to keep reminding yourself, I go to our every time. And I have to remind myself that I come here for the day, and I leave. But Other people that I'm seeing are are living there. They wake up there and they sleep there and they wake up to this life with no end in sight. And you can't imagine how um, detrimental the situation is. So empathy, because you need to gain people's trust. You can't just go into an area and say, okay, I'm here to help you, I'm the hero. People don't trust the healthcare system. A lot of them don't trust NGOs. Um, especially the refugees who are not registered. They'll think you're here to take their data. Are you gonna deport them? Are you gonna report them to the authorities? So you need to be able to to, to gain their trust and not to break it um, because again, they are vulnerable people. So it's easy to take advantage of that. Mm. Um, And two, um, to have respect for the culture and the background. So you need to be very flexible. And I think that would be my advice. Be be flexible, be patient, be empathetic, and be humble. It's not about coming in, oh, I'm the country director. I make money. Oh, look at me. I'm coming to save you and help you and make your day better. It's not about that. It's that I'm here to support. Will you allow me to give you the support that you need? And a lot of times you get rejected. They say, no, I don't want your help. And you have to respect that.
0: Right, right. And yeah. and I guess, Vlad, Vlad I'm sure you, you agree with that assessment too.
2: Yeah, yeah. Specifically about the empathy, I've just literally, be, before the podcast, uh, I was in a conference the, by WHO. So they want to introduce compassion into healthcare. So they were showing how much compassion could actually increase the quality of care for the patient. And I think the humanitarian work actually uh, increased my level of compassion with people. Because when you're in a hospital, especially in IR, at some point you are treating more diseases and people are numbered. So you're kind of obliged to be dissociated, you know, from, from humanity or from uh, or, or from the people to just be sane, you know, and solve medical problems. But to the humanitarian it kind of, you know, I felt closer to the people uh, again. And um, I think I get—I always get this question, like how I can help, what can I do, but only for a short period. The good thing, there are always short period positions for one month, for two weeks, for three months. Uh, we call them surge missions. Uh, and most of international NGOs have search positions, so you will be part of a pool, and whenever there's a disaster or there's an ongoing crisis, you will be called up. You will be offered a contract. You could say yes, you could say no, and uh, you you go. And I I have a couple of friends who did that. Uh, they are in an anesthesi- anesthesiology. They could go to Madagascar for a month to support the hospital and and so on. So. The the, the possibilities are there, especially for medical uh, uh, workers, because there's a huge need worldwide. And by 2030, maybe by 2050, there will be a huge need of healthcare workers. So I think this and another message maybe uh, for universities is to actually incorporate humanitarian work into their curricula, because it is also one thing to bring people closer to the field bring doctors closer to the people actually
0: yeah i I agree i mean empathy i mean these days i think it's a big one is emotional intelligence and and empathy and i think people uh, when when you start meeting people in person you become more empathetic when you start hearing stuff on the news and hearing about people without meeting them then that's when you form your preconceived ideas and you start talking about other people as if they're enemies so i think I agree with both of you, and I think you both see it probably working in NGOs. You meet all the refugees, you meet people from different parts of the country and different parts of the world, and that makes you more empathetic and that these people are also similar to us, have their own problems, but maybe similar some some similar problems uh, that we all deal with at the same time. So, mohammed do you want to add anything, uh, Hamad Ali?
3: No, I've just been thinking about how empathy is what makes human. And this is what will set us apart from artificial intelligence and robots and our new futuristic trends that we're seeing. They always ask if AI and robots will replace human doctors. And I think the answer is no, uh, not until they get this emotional uh, intelligence part. And I think there's something to be said, like Tanya was saying, about going and meeting people in person and having this one-on-one connection. I don't think anything can replace that. And if you're genuine in your work with your patients, I don't think you should be very worried about uh, any AI or robot uh, replacing you. There's a lot of need that can uh, be filled and AI can help us with a lot of uh, those needs, but I, I don't think this human one-on-one uh, connection uh, is replaceable. So I've just been think- reflecting about that as Vlad and Tanya have been talking. And yeah, a kind word can go a long way, just like uh, Tanya was saying, definitely.
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks to both of you for being on the podcast, and hopefully we'll we'll meet soon in person uh, in Lebanon. Are you coming to Lebanon this summer? I am in five days.
1: Oh wow! Nice. Ah,
0: cool. So let's meet.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah Let's
0: meet. Hamad is going to be there at the same time, so I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Yep. Okay. Great. All right, guys. <laughs>
3: Thank, thank you, thank you so very, very much. For you. I really enjoyed meeting you in person. We've known each other on Twitter and social media for the past two or three mm. years. So it's good to put the face uh, to the name, like they say.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, thank you.
3: Thank Bye. you. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye.